Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and on this episode, my guest is Emma Newman. Emma is the critically acclaimed author of the urban fantasy series Split Worlds, as well as the stunning piece of science fiction, the Planetfall series, which was shortlisted for Best Series at the 2020 Hugo Awards. Emma is also an audiobook narrator and co-wrote and hosted the Alfie and Hugo award-winning podcast Tea and Jeopardy, which is why her audio in this interview sounds amazing. This interview took place in mid-August 2021, and my one disclaimer for this episode is that I think it might be my favourite interview I've done so far. And you'll hear why straight after this jingle. So I'm here this afternoon with Emma Newman. Hello. 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 Thank you for joining me. Uh, my first question, as always, is what are we drinking? Oh, it's got to be a nice cup of tea. Yes. Lovely. And uh, you're very particular about the way you have your tea? I like it with milk and no sugar. And I think probably because of things that I've produced in the past and various interviews with me and things like that, people often think that I have some kind of like real tea snobbery and like would only have a particular brand and I really don't just a <laughs> bog standard cup of tea good builders tea yeah. will sort me out absolutely fine do you have any inverse snobbery that if it's too fancy that puts you off or is it you just happy with everything yeah actually that's very true I and I am very fussy when it comes to what I would call tea like mm. fruit teas no <laughs> Yeah, that's just wrong. It's just the thing. The thing that upsets me about fruit and herbal teas is that they smell amazing, but then they taste like dishwater. In my experience, <laughs> yes. oh, absolutely. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. It's because <laughs> they're good for you, Emma. It's because they're good for you. you. Can't have things that are good for you taste nice. I think that my bog standard builder's tea is very good for me, so I'm going to stick true. with that. That's true. It's got lots of antioxidants. And are you one of these people that you have to have your first cup of tea before you can function? in anything in the morning like you before a cup of tea is not someone that people should encounter it's actually me before coffee that people should okay. encounter I have coffee first thing in the morning so I have that is my first drink of the day and then I have a second cup of coffee and then the rest of the day is tea so is tea your working drink yes and coffee is my oh my god I have to face the day again drink yeah and be functional and tea is maybe life isn't so bad yeah. drink for me, this seems revelatory because I associate you with tea so much, but I'm also <laughs> a coffee drinker. So it's like a joy to hear that you also drink coffee. Do you have a particular way that you drink your coffee? Uh, yes, always with two sweeteners or sugars and strong coffee, but with lots of milk. OK, my wife is the same with tea, actually. She likes it very strong, but milky. Um, yes, that's but, how, yeah, that's more yeah. or less how I like my tea. That's yeah. how I consider a good builder's tea. Yes, but this is my first cup of tea in a while and it is quite tasty. I, I am enjoying it, I must admit. It's one of those things which is such a cultural touchstone mm. that I almost feel cliched with the importance that tea plays in my life, but I, I can't deny it. It is one of those things, everything is falling apart. The world's on fire. Your dog has just announced that they're going to leave home and go and leave, live somewhere else. And you know, the roof has fallen in and every single thing it's, oh, let's put the kettle on. Oh, let's have a brew, as my <laughs> it, nana would say. It does have that association, doesn't it? It's such a, a calming uh, influence yeah. across British culture, historically as well. Um, but... Yeah, and it, it's got such a terrible history. I mean, the most <laughs> horrific things that we've done as as an empire yeah. to secure tea supply is horrendous. 
but I can't let go of it. And it's <laughs> it's just one of those things that I just have to live with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and where I'm speaking to you right now is this is your writing office. Is this where you actually do your writing? Yes, I do all of my writing and my sewing and my making things, my art, everything in this room. And for our listeners, as yeah, someone who may have heard your uh, Tea and Jeopardy podcast and the lair and the ever-changing locations, I would love to hear you describe your office to our listeners and how would you go about describing it? It's not nearly as exciting as all of the tea lair locations for Tea and Jeopardy. Um, my office is more functional than beautiful. It has a very important piece of art to me on the wall, which I'm looking at now, which is a painting of a moor in Yorkshire, which I found in a gallery when I was teaching for an Arvon writing course, a residential oh, yeah. course a few years yeah. ago. And it was one of those kind of Jaws-like contra-zoom moments when I saw it on the other <laughs> side of the gallery. And it's like, oh my God. And it haunted me. It haunted me for over a week afterwards. Wow. And I had the wherewithal to take the card with me and uh, had to think seriously about whether to get it because it was the, the first piece, the first and only piece of original art I've ever bought. But and love at first it. sight. Love at first sight. Yeah, it, like. it was very much so. It really, I, I love it so much. It's It's got beautiful colours in it, but the mm. thing I love the most is the way that the artist has um, painted rain falling mm. across a distant moor. It's a very dark and brooding very bleak picture. That's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> very evocative. I always define, for me, I define art as something that elicits an emotional response, and that can be both positive and negative. And it certainly sounds like this is something that elicited an emotional response in you. Absolutely. But going back to describing my office, it's full of broadly organised fabric and my huge cutting table and my sewing machine and my computer and my audio book recording setup. So there's a lot going on in this room and it overlooks my back garden, which has been mostly taken over by squash that I've been growing this year. And it's grown like triffids. Oh, wow. And it's like pretty much, well, there's an apple tree that for the first year has started to produce fruit because I planted it last year. And that's it really. It's, oh. yeah, there are houses that I can see. I would really love to say that it's in some kind of, very interesting eco home bunker in the middle of moorland somewhere but alas i would be lying you can say you can see a bleak moor and triffid like plants uh, yes. from where you're sat so yeah we'll go with that <laughs> surrounded by uh, swathes of uh, fabric to be created into marvelous costumes just you know waiting so with your writing yeah this is you know where you do the nuts and bolts uh, development do you go anywhere specifically for inspiration? Do you find sitting in that room you can develop ideas or do you need to get out of the house? Uh, no, I, I don't associate ideas with any particular location or even a state of being. They will just arrive. The only thing I can say that they all have in common is that it's usually at a really inconvenient time <laughs> and they really demand a lot of thought and a lot of attention and sometimes my attention needs to be elsewhere and it can be a little bit frustrating but yeah sometimes I do feel like I'm just stumbling through life and then every now and again this kind of weird boglin turns up and grabs hold of my trouser leg and says <laughs> write me now <laughs> um, 
uh, but I have all these other, no, write me now. <laughs> and, you know, that I don't have much control over that at all. And so do you feel that you have to m make a note of it? Do you carry notebooks with you for, you know, when the Bocklin arrives? Or <laughs> uh, is it something that it's just, okay, hold on, I'll, I will remember this, but I need to finish task A first? Uh, no, I don't write anything down. I, I was on a panel at a convention a few years ago, and I was with other writers. And this came up in the discussion because one of them said, I write every single idea I have down in a notebook. And I've been a writer for many years now. So I have dozens of notebooks that are filled with ideas. And then whenever I need one, I just open up a notebook and there's one there. And then it came to my turn in the panel. And I said, no, I don't write any of them down. And the look on his face was just such <laughs> complete horror. And I explained at the time that I don't write the ideas down because the good ones will stay. Mm. And it's a way for me to sort out the wheat from the chaff Yeah. because I get lots of ideas, many, many, many ideas, not all the time, but you know, I do get lots. I've had lots over the years and sometimes they are just like sea foam that mm. have just been created by the churn of my life and the, the activity of my brain at the time and they surface. And I'll think, oh, that would be an interesting idea for a story. But the ones that stay are the ones that would actually be able to be turned into something substantial. They're not just foam that are going to dissipate. Mm. And it's the ones that haunt me. It's the ones that re are the genuine like creature-like things that will hang on and will just not let me go. Yeah. But I have the faith that there is something really decent there mm. to develop in and to put a lot more work and time into. Um, sometimes I will have an idea and I know immediately it's for a short story. And that is the, the very kind of like the simple one line idea. Sometimes a whole story will pop into my head fully formed. And I think that's a short story. I'm going to write that and that's done. But for novels, yeah, there's a lot more kind of um, waiting and seeing if it sticks that goes on. And it sounds like a lot of your ideas are more scenario based. It's, it's sort of like a what if this happened rather than yes a and or a no. Okay. It depends on the story. It depends on the genre to a certain extent, though the genre is usually one of the last pieces that falls into place. I guess when it comes to science fiction, a lot of science fiction can emerge from the question of what if, but I write very character driven mm. fiction. Yeah. So it's more, it's often more having an idea for a character or something that I want to explore in terms of an experience. And then that develops into an idea. Or sometimes it can be a question, a question that I want to answer. And sometimes that question can be a what if, but not as often as a question like, would I be able to pull off? So for example, after Atlas, which is the second novel in the Planetfall series, that one, one of the bigger questions to begin with was, can I write a murder mystery set 80 years in the future and still make it compelling when technology takes away a lot of the tools that crime fiction uses to mm. maintain interest and to prolong suspense and to, do all of those things that keep you reading and engaged. Could I do that if I flip that all on its head? Can I pull that off? And at the same time, 
around you know when I was developing that that the collection of ideas that went into After Atlas one of the things I wanted to explore was abandonment and yeah. that is at the heart of the psychology of the protagonist and I also wanted to explore power imbalance and the horrors of unfettered capitalism and to talk about what I think the world will be like in the future if we don't sort out several critical things now. And so that's a huge amount of stuff that just gets chucked <laughs> into a big pot. So I would say that generally one of the first things that comes up is a sense of what I want a character to go through mm -hmm. and a question. Yeah. Sometimes it can be completely accidental. The Split World series, which is urban fantasy, that started from a short story that literally was in my head as I woke up one morning and you know before anyone starts hating me that doesn't actually happen that often <laughs> but, but it did happen that morning and at the time I was part of a flash fiction community this was before I'd been published and I had this idea in my head I needed to write a thousand word story that day because we all published on a Friday and I fired it off went off to do everything I needed to do that day came back and the community seemed to love it. I didn't know at the time, but it was the beginning of me growing an entire world with three levels of reality that went on to become a five book series. But it was only like 10 short stories into that where I'd been writing them every week and like plucking out a different kind of silly, fun, kind of urban fantasy-esque thing to play with each week. I suddenly realized, oh, I'm actually developing a world for novels here. And I stumbled across the main character in the writing of those short stories. So sometimes it doesn't even follow the pattern I've just explained with After Atlas. <laughs> so I'd love to say that it's a very tidy replicating process for each project, but it isn't. I mean, do you feel in yourself that it has evolved over time or is it just as the idea hits you, your working method develops as you're developing that idea? I think that what's refined over time is the way that I handle an idea once I choose to develop it into a novel. So the, the process from getting from the initial idea or question or combination thereof to actually sitting down and starting to write the novel and how I turn that initial idea or ideas into a sustained narrative that has been refined over the years. Definitely in terms of choosing which idea to develop. I'm just thinking now that there have probably been, I think, a total of two ideas that I started to develop into a novel and then abandoned. And that's, oh, I don't know, 15 odd years now of mm. writing seriously. I'm very fussy about what I develop. Mm. And just because of the way that my career has also shaped up as well, the, the necessity to write to contract and the outlines of what I'm expected to produce for that particular contract also has an influence. And by that, I mean, when Planetfall was sold, they didn't just want Planetfall, they wanted two novels for the mm. contract and Planetfall was a standalone. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and they wanted it in the same universe. Yeah. And that was a bit of a shocker. So I had to come up with an idea and all of that stuff that had been churning around in my brain then became after Atlas. Mm. And then Planetfall was so successful, they wanted two more books in the Planetfall universe after those two had been delivered. Mm. And then I was constrained by having to write within that particular universe. 
And so the ideas that were kind of coming up at the time and things that I'd been mulling over were emergent from writing within that universe. Mm. So it, it, it skews the process. Whereas more recently, um, I'm actually about 10,000 words into a book. For the first time in my life, I'm writing two books absolutely side by side. I had oh, wow. one year where I wrote two novels and a novella in one year, but I did them sequentially. But at the moment, I'm in a strange position where I'm writing a book that I've been commissioned to write, but another one turned up and absolutely would not let go. And I, I have to write it. I'm compelled to write it. And I feel that quite rarely. So I'm paying attention to it and I've got the commissioned project to just shy of 25k i'm at the end of act one in that that project and i've put that aside to write the the first kind of 20 to 30k of this book so i can send it to my agent and say what do you think has this got legs and then i'll go back to my commission so i've never written like this before so i've had 10 books published and short story collections and i've been in anthologies and this is the first time in my career where i've done this so it, it changes it evolves and I mean, with those two, are they very different? Are they different genres? Are they written in Because I know you've <laughs> written both third and first person. And so, yes. you know, so are, yeah, are, they are, are they very different? Yes, they are. They are completely different in terms of genre. Very, very different, which helps. And also the commissioned novel is within a shared universe. I've been given kind of some guidelines on the kind of thing that the publisher wants. I've come up with the storyline and the characters, um, but it, it isn't writing my own world, not writing mm. my own novel. It's the first time I've done it. It's the first time I've been involved in a shared universe project for a novel. So that feels very different because of that as well. But they're both third person POV, but the commissioned novel is a tight single POV and the other one I'm writing is multiple POVs, but only two characters at the moment. So yes, they are different. And I think it would be very difficult to write two first person POV deep psychological exploration novels like I did with the Planetfall series. Yeah. It'd be very hard to write two like that, especially in the same genre. I think I'd probably go crackers. <laughs> um, that year where I wrote two novels and a novella, one of them was in the Planetfall series, one of them was in the Split World series, and the novella was third person POV. Mm. So the Planetfall series was first person, the Split World series was multiple third person POVs, but very tight POVs to each mm. of those characters. And yeah, I didn't write them concurrently, but they're almost like going to different houses or different... Mm completely different places. That's the only way that I can describe it. It's like they have completely different spaces within my mind. Yeah. And when I've gone to the space that one world inhabits, intrinsic to that space is the style that I'm writing it in, if that makes sense. Through doing these interviews, one of the things that's helped formulate in my mind, a lot of writers talk about having several ideas percolating at the mm. same time, and but there's a main focus with a few brewing in the background. And uh, one of the best metaphors I heard was a cooking stove and you've got multiple hobs on and some things are simmering in the background, but you're cooking the main dish. And it just sounds like you're using both front hobs and you're <laughs> alternating. Um, That's it, a really it, nice analogy. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Uh, that works, that, that, as long as you agree. 
it uh, does work and there's a third book that i've written two chapters of which was mm. going to be my next book and then the commission came up and it was like oh okay i've started that off on the the hob if we want to mm, take yeah. this analogy i'm going to put it into a casserole dish and that's just going to sit on a really low heat in the oven yep. and i know that, that there's a bit of my brain that is constantly tinkering away with that book and i will go to that after i finished these two that i'm writing um, but I also know that that book is harder to write than the two that I'm writing at the moment. And so there's a bit of me that almost feels like I need to clear these two projects to have the mental space, but also hopefully a bit of a financial boost to be able to survive long enough to work on this third book when I'll get it out of the oven and you know really start yeah. working on it on the stove so, so it's going um, to be a long project it's not so much that it's going to be a long project it's going to it's more that it's going to be more consuming right in in terms of my mental energy and how many other projects I'll be able to do alongside it and also the amount of research and thinking I mm. <laughs> it's I'm not going to talk about it in any detail because I never no. talk about my projects in sure. detail, but it's the question that I am asking myself in that book is huge. And I don't know even how to go about answering it yet, which is exciting and also yeah. terrifying. So I know that I'm going to have to give so much more to that. So I'm going to need to scale back other things that I do. And I have multiple income streams. And so there is a there are financial ramifications for taking on a project that takes up that much bandwidth. So that is often, you know, always at the back of your mind when you're writing as well. And you're kind of at the stage I am in my career where I've had several books published. There's a I don't want to say conveyor belt, but there is a definite, OK, I need to sell a book yeah. because I need to be able to afford to live and I work very hard to try to devote my life to creative pursuits yeah. because I spent a lot of my adult life doing awful jobs to pay the bills and I really don't want to go back to doing that. So I would much rather earn a wage through writing novels and selling novels and recording audiobooks and writing short stories and, and things like that. But it, it is difficult to manage when you live in late stage capitalist dystopian hellscape that we do now. <laughs> we do indeed. <laughs> um, I want to go on to, you said earlier that you're very character driven in your stories. Mm. And you've got uh, two books on the go at the moment, one with you know, sort of two main character focus and one with another how do you go about developing those characters? Because one, obviously, in a shared universe, did they tell you, you know, about the character or was it completely your own invention? No. So I was given free reign on the characters, the exact setting, even the time period within a certain frame. So I have a lot of freedom with that project. So with that character, what I wanted to do was to tell a particular kind of story. It's really hard for me to explain it without um, giving away details of the project. And we're not, um, okay. it's not gone public yet. So I'm not allowed to talk about it really. But suffice it to say that I decided it, the project demanded a certain type of story. 
And so that type of story gave rise to a large number of things that I could do, but it also did narrow narrow down exactly the kind of story that I wanted to tell within that range. And then once I knew that kind of story, I thought, okay, this is the starting point. This is this girl's life at the beginning of the novel. Um, and this is the emotional arc. This is the development that I want her to go through. This is her inciting instant. This is the motivation she has at the beginning of the novel. And this is how it's going to change her. And I have an idea of that in very broad strokes very early in the project. So that was how that character came about. And also I played in a role playing game a few years ago where there were a couple of similarities between a character that I played and this book character. They're very different in lots of ways, but there are a couple of elements that were the same and it was so enjoyable to play. And I thought actually that resonates really well with this kind of story that I need to tell. So there's a tiny bit of that character that's gone into her as well. With the other book that I'm writing at the moment, that was a very strange experience actually. <laughs> a very strange experience and not typical for me that I was thinking about the the main topic of the book and was thinking about the way that it would affect families involved in that and then suddenly it all unfolded in my head very very suddenly the the core of the book the circumstances of the family the three siblings what they'd been through how it had impacted them in terms of their own psychological development, but also their interpersonal relationships with each other. And then the plot arrived, like the full rest of the book plot arrived about half an hour later. And that is incredibly unusual and very strange. And I thought, oh, okay, if that's going to be a one to stick around, it'll still be there tomorrow. <laughs> and it, it didn't let me go. So yes, that's very, that's a very unusual case. But with all of the characters in my books, I think being a very keen role player plays a very large part in it because I was gonna, yeah i was going to ask about that because you've been quite involved in live action role play as well as just general yeah. role playing games and do you feel that's really helped you develop character or have a shorthand way to develop character yes and no i think one of the things that role play has given me because i i played tabletop and larp like for over 20 years now. And when in the period of my life, when I had temporarily forgotten that I was a writer and was trying to just run away from it, that's a very silly story. Anyway, I didn't write for 10 years and my university years were part of that 10 year period. And I did a lot of GMing. So the storytelling was still there. It was just in a different medium. Mm. And the storytelling through character in all of the games I played as well was something I really enjoyed. And one of the things that I think is directly transferable from role playing is, or at least the kind of role playing that I really enjoy and really love, is to really inhabit the mental space of the character that I'm portraying, to really look at their life and think, how would that make you into the person that you want to play? How has that character's previous experiences shaped their internal world? How does it affect the way that they relate to other people? All of those are really fundamental questions that you have to ask if you want to write character-focused fiction as well, because it's not enough to just know what they did and where they went to school and what job they've got, or even how they approach their work or their problems or whatever. For me, I want to really understand and to think very deeply about how 
they are shaped by their life experiences prior to the beginning of the book and how that then informs the way that they react to the events of the book and then finding a way to convey both of those to the reader that's enjoyable and not too expositional that they are understandable you know i want every major character in my books even the people who are really awful i want them all to be understandable and to mm. a certain extent sympathetic even when they are doing awful things and that's when i feel i've done my job correctly is thinking enough about that character's life to be able to infuse everything they do within the book with genuine plausibility and internal consistency is, you know, for me, in terms of world building, I'm very into world building and internal consistency in world building is one of the things that I work very hard at. But there is also internal consistency in the psychology of each character yes. that has to be res respected. And with that, do you write down any sort of character, like personality types, um, or is it all kept in your head? they're all in my head which is it's it gets annoying when you're writing a five book series with four pov characters yeah. and you're like ah uh, the thing was that wasn't difficult in, in that series this is a split world series what was actually more difficult to keep track of is when people found out certain key pieces of information for plot purposes mm. and that was when i had to start keeping notes and to start actually really writing things on index cards and planning it out but in terms of having a grip on the character no they they are so realistic in my head that it's like going and putting a different pair of boots on as soon as i've got those boots on i know exactly who they are and what their life is like and you know sometimes it's a combination of putting various key events into place in their backstory and then excavating as I go along. Um, sometimes it's clearer than that before I start. And there are certain things like as soon as you have a central premise for a character, you know that you're going to have to build in certain kind of experiences to make that character plausible, which was very much the case with the protagonist of Planetfall. And again, I'm, yes. I'm not going to talk about details there because it'll spoil the book. But No, no, no. Well, fortunately, I mean, I had a personal connection to uh, someone in my life uh, was very similar to the central protagonist of Planetfall and it resonated so true to me. It was so authentic. And to know that you just kept it in your head, how do you research that personality? We don't need to discuss which personality type, but that's a very notable personality type which can be identified. So was there a, how did you research that? Or was it simply that you knew someone who had that um, person? Funny enough, I remember that conversation we had at the event in Bristol, and that's that was something that has stayed with me ever since. So thank you for telling me that because it meant a huge amount to me. Because there's always a there's always a fear that I have that if I write things that I won't do them justice, that I won't do them well enough. And I see that every story has a, a tax that you pay to it, and the tax that you pay when you write stories about people who have mental illness, who have trauma, who have very difficult circumstances in their lives, that tax has to be much higher because it will have a direct impact on people. So with that particular character, 
I drew upon some of the things I came across in my degree, which admittedly, because of the nature of my degree, wasn't as helpful as I wished it would have been. I studied experimental psychology, and the emphasis of that degree course was you can only study things which can be empirically proven. It was just because that particular university had a bee in its bonnet about making psychology a respectable science. But luckily, I got to run away and do a summer school course in um, <laughs> abnormal psychology, as it was called at the time. And I learnt about a particular suite of obsessive compulsive disorders within that course that really interested me. I have no direct experience of that, that life that my protagonist in that book leads. I don't know anyone personally who suffers from it, but I've read a huge number of case studies. I've watched television programmes which are in my mind, I think quite awful exploitations of people suffering. But what I took away from those programs wasn't the kind of the false forced narrative of those particular types of shows, but snapshots into the worlds of these people. And from that went and found out more information, reading um, people talking about it online, but also really examining some of my own traits and seeing where they intersect with that and thinking, I think I have the same roots of illness that these people have and theirs has gone in a different direction and it's expressed itself in a different way. But I can genuinely understand and empathize with what underpins that. Mm. And certainly with all of the characters that I've written, especially in the Planetfall novels, each of them, all they all struggle with different forms of mental illness or the impact of deep trauma. And each of them, there is a part of me that is common to all mm. of them, especially with Before Mars, where the protagonist has postnatal depression. Mm. I suffered from postnatal depression. That was a more direct connection. I could draw more, much more on my own personal experiences of mm. it. But with the Planetfall novel, it was, yeah, there was a lot of research, a lot of careful selection of what I took from some more unreliable sources and just a lot of interest, introspection and relating to the, what I was talking about with underpinning it in multiple forms of mental illness it's like they they often come from a very similar place mm. and that is often loss extreme loss over a quick successive period one person can develop one illness from that another person can develop another type so it was like going back to the core root and then feeling that yeah that i then put into that character does that inform your writing now on the current projects that you're working on there's still that you're looking at the root um, elements of the character, like said in the shared universe that, you know, you know, the inciting incident. Are you drawing on you know, your own empathy skills or are you with that much like the Planetfall having to look at uh, case study forums to get the, the emotional truth of that sort of personality of someone going through those events is it something you can draw on yourself or are you still doing external research with this one this is more drawing it drawing on it from my own experience but the commissioned novel is not as deep as the planetfall novels it's an adventure story so there is still going to be psychological authenticity there but it's not as going to be as deep an exploration 
as the Planetfall novels were. And the other book that I'm writing, yeah, there's a lot. So I've been recovering from a breakdown and I've been in therapy now for about 18 months. And I've been doing a lot of work in therapy about generational trauma and how it can affect relationships within families. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm having to write this book at the moment, because I'm processing lots of stuff that I've learned through that. You know, people say, you know, write what you know, and the writing community has resoundingly rebuffed that in recent years <laughs> and said, oh, for goodness sake, can you please stop saying that? Yeah. But I think that what I would like to think is that when people say write what you know, what they may well have been getting at is actually find the common point of emotional experience, find the bit in your life that has the same emotional resonance mm. as what your characters are going through, because they're often very common. And mm. so the situation that the protagonist, the family is in this book, I haven't experienced anything like it, but I have experienced generational trauma. I have and am experiencing difficulties in family relationships caused by people being shaped by trauma. Mm. And that can be directly drawn upon and create what I hope to be very realistic characters because it's being based on something that is real, even though the particular circumstances are different. So we've gone about your characters. If we can go into your world building and actually how you go about that. So it's with your research of uh, science uh, with the Planetfall books, because there's a fascination with uh, engineering and tech and how that evolve. And it's really interested in how you approach that. I, I don't feel it was just a simple, let's Google what's coming up. <laughs> I no, I have always been really nerdy. I'm just a big old nerd and I have always been interested in science. And I think I would have been a scientist if I could do maths. That was one of the great tragedies of my teenage years was looking at my eight options for GCSEs and being very excited about physics and my science teacher pulling me to one side and saying, Em, you can't do maths, you can't do physics. It's like, but, but I love all of the stuff. I love the theory. And I was really good at the stuff that didn't need maths. But he was saying, you know, the higher you go up in learning about the kind of science you like, the more it just turns into maths. I'm really yeah. sorry. And that just made me so sad. He was entirely right. I skidded through the statistics aspect of my degree on my backside. And honestly, I'm terrible when it comes to numbers. So I've always loved science, but I've always been forced to enjoy it more as a layman but it's never gone away. And so I read, you know, scientific journals and I keep abreast of the news and I just absorb a lot about developments in, you know, various areas. And so for all of the science in uh, the Planetfall novels, that was all, you know, the, the world building aspect of it was as much as possible, the logical extrapolation of what we have now 80 years in the future. Mm. I don't necessarily believe all of the things that I have extrapolated. I don't, for example, believe that in 80 years we will have the neural chip technology that I have in those books. Mm. But that was something that I wanted to play with. And so that was what I consider to be my one big lie. So 
there was that but even with all of that stuff i tried to keep it very grounded in how it could work if mm. certain advances were made and some of the components of what the neural chips can do in those books are already being done have been being done for a long time. And the deep implant technology that's been being used to treat severe depression and certain other mental illnesses, which has been going on for a couple of decades at least, I think, through to the research that's being done, helping people with locked-in syndrome, communicating via neural chips that are much more um, simplistic than the ones in the books. So I tried to root every time something came up where I thought, okay, this would be cool. It was all rooted in real science. And certainly for the colony in Planetfall, that was all very much based on a particular scientist's current work, Dr. Rachel Armstrong. She did a talk at the Clark Awards in 2012, 2013, I don't remember because, hello, I'm terrible with numbers. <laughs> But she did this amazing talk about her work and that went in so deep into my brain. My brain was just fizzing with excitement at the stuff she was talking about with synthetic biology and, and just incredible things that she was doing. And the technology used in the colony, a lot of that was inspired by her work, but extrapolated forwards. Um, and as for the 3D printing aspect, 3D printing is just cool. Everyone yes. knows this, it is known. And I got very excited about 3D printing. I, I still remember the exact moment when I was reading about the first home 3D printers. Mm. And I started reading the article and then I had to stop and I was thinking, I can't visualize this. What is this? Because I was looking at my laser jet printer and going, yeah. um, ah, uh, how is this? And then I went and looked into it and it's like, oh, this is so cool. And I enthused about it to my uncle who is an engineer. And in fact, he was one of the people that I really drew upon to write Ren's engineering mindset. Mm. I'd think about how my uncle approaches problems and I had various discussions with him in how he diagnoses issues and how he works out a solution to a particular problem and, and incorporated that into the way that Ren solves problems and investigates things in the book. And I remember going round to his house and saying, oh, I've been looking into 3D printing and it's so amazing. And did you know you could do this thing? And he turned around and he said, we've had 3D printers at work for 10 years, Em. <laughs> And I was like, why did you not tell me? Because <laughs> he works for, well, he's retired now, but he worked for a company that builds helicopters. Yeah. And they were 3D printing components for the last decade when I talked to him about it. It was about eight years ago that I was yeah. having this conversation with him. And I was so extraordinarily excited and really, it really brought home to me that our own perception of the way that things are advancing really is very dependent on what we intersect with in the world. And yeah. that in his world, it was old tech. Whereas for me, just because I'd stumbled across some kind of domestic consumer, oh, 3D printers are now becoming affordable for hobbyists. Mm. That was my first experience of it. Um, so yeah, for the, the world building, the science there, the talk by Rachel Armstrong, you know, there was a big part of that technology once I decided about the neural chip technology, that also informs other decisions that you make about the world. And I mentioned before about the internal consistency that's important within yes. world building, that I spend a lot of 
thinking time considering how having one particular type of technological advance would have an impact on the way that people live because for me that's where science fiction gets really sexy is the kind of the intersection between human experience and technology and so you know does it facilitate understanding between people does it hinder it does it do good things for the way a particular problem is solved in the world or is that a bad way that things are solved and certainly with the colony in planetfall i wanted to have a colony that was completely non-colonialist in its attitude i hate the legacy of my ancestors i hate the impact that colonialism has had upon the world and i wanted to have a society that was established completely rejecting the ideals of colonialists that they don't go to this other place to find all of the resources they can and exploit them for profit that they go somewhere and they tread as lightly as they can upon that place and they go there for a, a spiritual reason and they're not harmful no. in the way that they live and build and take from the environment yeah. and i wanted to explore that too yeah also you know, it's going on the uh, other genres that you've written in you know, urban fantasy with the split worlds novel mm. uh, or novels you know, there's a very different approach to how you world build there and obviously they're it's very based in Regency historical elements. How did you world build there? Was there a bit of like historical research to, or you know, was it just <laughs> reference on fiction? There's a, there's a just mountains of historical research that was done for those novels and about 5% of it actually made it into the books. There's the entire kind of background history and lore of why the nether, which is that plane of reality between Exilium, which is where the Fey reside, and the normal mundane world that is our normal present day everyday world. Yeah, the amount of research that went into that and why it was like that and all of the the historical events that happened within the world to create that has never reached the light of day. It's all in my head. And yeah, the process of coming up with the split worlds, in some ways it was different and in, in other ways it was completely the same because it was looking at a key decision I had made, the Fae are real, they are not Disney fairies, they are scary, more like the she drawing upon that folklore. And once I decided that they existed, and once I had the idea about the sorcerers that were the opposing power faction, then those key decisions led to really fundamental questions like how does the magic work and this i guess this is where my gm experience comes from and where that was useful because in my mind it was very important to have a very good grasp of exactly how the magic worked in this world that i was creating because just like when you're a gm you have to have a grasp i think of what is happening within the world and how if you have a magic system in your world how that works to be able to cope with players who look at your plot and then walk in the opposite direction and decide to do something completely different instead yeah. or when they find the big red button they will always press it all of these things and you have to know what happens next yeah. and if you have a really solid understanding of how everything works on a very fundamental level you can cope with whatever the story or the players demand and it's exactly the same. I knew right from the start when I started developing the first novel that it was going to be a big story. Mm. And so I needed to be certain of how the fundamental things worked so that I didn't 
paint myself into a corner or do something really stupid later on mm. so that I would build in that internal consistency immediately. So for the sorceress magic, I based it on PHP and MySQL coding <laughs> language, which I could write at the time. And I had some coding experience and I approached their magic through that framework. And the Fey magic was completely different. It was based on emotion and the soul and how they could completely balance each other out was very important because otherwise they wouldn't be plausible rival factions fighting over basically the nature of reality and but there are there are tons of other bits of research and in terms of the historical aspects for the nether that was all very much determined by when nether cities were established and what the dominant historical period was at the time because the whole shtick about the nether is that nothing changes there it's stagnant mm. and there aren't the same events in wider society that force change nothing changes there and so i wanted to explore that and you have people who came from slightly different historical periods and had slightly different ideas and you know how the one of the protagonists her father was actually very involved in World War One, and what he experienced in World War One had a huge impact on the way that he treated his family, whereas her uncle was from the Regency period and had a completely different outlook. So all of those things are important for world building, but again, it comes back to that having character as centre of what does that person experience. And once I realised that the people who were the Fey touched, who were the families that live in the nether, that they are actually just normal human beings. They just have Fey patrons and mm. puppet masters effectively. The next question was, okay, if the nether is this place that exists between planes of reality and never changes, how the hell do they grow up? Oh, they grow, they grow up in the real world. Obviously they grow up in Mundanus and then they go through to live permanently in the nether. And then it became like an allegory for how awful it is when you're a child and you have to then suddenly go to the world of work and loads and loads of different things could play into that. Yeah, there's a lot going on in those books. <laughs> yes. And how it must be, as you were saying, it's very different for you writing in a shared universe. So a lot of the rules of the world are already established. So how's that been? And, and are you still able to create uh, world rules uh, within this shared universe? Yeah, that's a different, yeah, it's, it's a new shared universe. And I think I'm very lucky in that I'm writing the first book in terms of chronological, like when it is happening in the timeline. So I've got quite a lot of freedom. But also the publisher has deliberately given us lots of freedom as well and have said, these are the key things. Go have fun which is fantastic so it's almost a pro it's a kind of a collaborative process it feels like between me and the publisher at the moment because i'm writing things and saying is this okay is this okay and they're like yeah it's all good it's all good so it's a very different experience to writing for the wild cards universe which is my other shared universe experience but that's only with short stories but that has been very different because that's a universe that's existed for over 30 years now mm. and has a huge cast of established characters, a large number of writers. And that has been a very different experience because that is far more constraining of you know what you can do and what you can write about because you really are coming into a world that is very you know fleshed out and 
has historical events that are there in canon. Um, and yes, yeah, that's much harder, I think, to, to deal with as a writer, because you can't just run off and do what you want. And I, I'm not a team person, really. <laughs> I'm not. I was. You've got to run it. Yeah. Well, not so much run it, but just do my own thing. It's. It really hit me. Like in the last year, I've discovered that I'm autistic, and Mm. it made so many things make sense. But one, one of the first memories that I was processing was taking part in my one and only escape room experience with three other people and as soon as we went in the other three were going around looking at things together and chatting about it and I just went off in literally a completely different direction just looked at stuff by myself processed stuff by myself found details found weird things filed them away in my brain and then found clues presented them to the group and then when one of them said oh wouldn't there be a such and such I could say oh yeah that's over here so we we kind of worked collaboratively, but I'm not very good at team think you know group activities because I just do things differently. I process things differently, and and I think when it comes to writing, I've always been used to having all the control and mm. creating exactly what I want to. I've had several friends who are writers over the year saying years saying, "Hey, we should do a collaborative thing," and I've said, "How does that work?" And they describe a process, and it just sounds like a living hell to me. And I'll say, like, I, I love you very much and I'm really flattered and I love your work, but no, I don't think I could ever write like that. That just sounds really weird and hard. You know, people, I've got several author friends where they've had collaborations where they, they don't even know necessarily who writes which lines by the end because they write stuff, they exchange it, they edit it, they write each other's bits. And in my mind, I just shudder and like, I'm so glad that works for you. But no, that's scary. Yeah. And actually going on to actually writing in and plotting out, are you someone who likes to have a clear outline of this happens, this happens, this happens? Or is it just, I want to end up at a certain point and I'm going to start writing and just sort of see how close I get. Neither. No. How, <laughs> how do you do it? So there's an approach in the programming world called Agile where you have a giant project and the client comes to you, say, theoretically, I want you to build a big website that does this. And you say, okay, there is, we'll build this website for you. So in the kind of the old waterfall approach, you listen to what they say they want, you go away and build it, you show it to the client and they say, oh no, this isn't what we wanted at all, in fact, but you know, you've done it, you've spent all the budget building what they said that they wanted, but they often don't know. The agile approach is to say, okay, great, you break it up into phases, you do 10, 20% of the project, you take it back to the client and say, is this what you wanted? And then they say, oh no, this isn't anything like what we wanted and then they can start to articulate it and you go okay and you refine your approach you take that on board and then you do the next phase and you check in again that's as close as I can get to explaining how I write a book so at the beginning of the book I will have my question that I want to answer very early in the process I usually have the idea of what the protagonist is like what kind of mind what kind of issues the psychological makeup of that character and how i want that to develop over the course of the novel so the the overarching 
kind of emotional and psychological development, where they're starting and where I think they will finish up. And also an idea of the plot. It starts here. I think it's going to end at this point. Maybe an idea of two or three major events, twists or whatever that happen along the way. And then I plan out the first five chapters or so, and it can literally just be bullet points or a single word. And then I write those chapters and then I go back to thinking about my original kind of conception of the arc of the novel and look at whether they still apply, whether it's still what my internal client wanted, whether I've actually ended up writing something completely different because I didn't know what I was making at the beginning and go, okay, that's going to change, or this is no longer working. And then I'll plan the next five chapters and then write them and then be constantly comparing with what I thought the book was about. I never ever sit down and write out the entire plan for a novel because I'd never want to write it. Yeah. If I plan it any more than that, I get bored with it. And even when I have a fairly detailed idea, like this shared world book, I had to write a full synopsis a detailed synopsis of what would happen. And even then there were bits in it where it was glossed over that I'm excited to get to because I want to find out what's going to happen. And when you sell a book to a publisher and you have to send in the synopsis, so it can be a, a side, two sides at most. Mm. There have to be big gaps in there for me to still be interested. And I'll often get to the point where I'm at the 90% mark. I know what has to happen but I don't know how exactly they're going to do it or exactly how it's going to feel or what the emotional resonance is going to be at that stage of the book, whether it's going to be hopeful or whether it's going to be bleak. I may not know until I get there. And that for me is what propels me to the end of the novel because I want to find out. That's the end. That's not the end. That's the end of part one, and the second and concluding part will be coming very soon. But for now, yeah, that, that is the end. Now, did I do a frustrating cut in the middle because I've just watched Dune? No. It's because Em and I spoke for two and a half hours and all of it was excellent. Now, I've cut out my waffle, but Emma, as you've clearly heard, is on fine and fascinating form. I couldn't cut her words, nor would I want to do that to you. However, whilst we have this intermission, please go buy her books, also, subscribe to her newsletter and Patreon as she does write a lot of short stories for her subscribers. Links to all of her books, social media, Patreon and newsletter sign-up can be found on her website enewman.co.uk. Now, I've also decided not to sign off with my usual tune, Until the World Ends, because that's not the vibe I want when there's a second part to come. Fortunately, Lolo has also sung a great tune called My Bucket List, which seems far more apt when I've interviewed Emma Newman. So here it is, and I'll sign off with bye for now. And take care, everybody. I look forward to having you back soon. No.
shiny cars But I'm quite content right here Please read my short list It's quite sincere To just sleep in 